Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Our story today starts a long time ago in a land far from here that once was the most beautiful place on earth. It was a special place created, planned, and arranged by God himself. He created it for his most special prized creation, man. If you look up at the screen on the monitor in Genesis 2.8, we read that Moses records that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 10, he goes on to say that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And keep it. Our story starts there this this morning. For it was here in the garden that God would walk and meet and fellowship in the cool of the day with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Until that fateful day when they disobeyed and rebelled against his righteous, holy word and rule. Plunging the entire world into sin and cursed with corruption and death. And as we saw last week, that was not the last word, as Yahweh promises them the hope of reconciliation. Until then, until that day, final day of reconciliation, God has granted them, granted Adam and Eve, a temporary means of grace and mercy. After clothing Adam and Eve to cover their shame, his second act of mercy is found in Genesis 3.22, if you'd like to turn there quickly. His second act of mercy was to actually banish them from the Garden of Eden. For in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. In verse 24, he says he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of life or way to the tree of life so I say that that's mercy and grace now when you first think and say wait a second he he kicked them out of the place that was made especially for them that was the most beautiful place how in the world is that grace and mercy well we see it that God pushes them out so that they would not have to live for eternity in their sin, without hope of any reconciliation, to live with the presence of sin forever. As he says, so that they may not eat of that tree of life and live forever. Let us 
banish them. Let's put them out and by putting a cherubim with a flaming sword to keep them out. Well, from our reading as we've gone on, after rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, God initiated a covenant last week with Israel for his glory and for the sake of the nations. This, as we said last week, is a crucial moment in the development of the entire biblical storyline as God revealed his plan to make Israel his special possession among the people of the land and to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God revealed his expectations for Israel by giving them the Ten Commandments and a block of 52 laws that will shape their social, economic, and worship life for a life together. And then God revealed his intentions to be with Israel by giving them victory over their enemies, preparing a home for them, and giving them prosperity. As we continue to move in the biblical storyline in today's passage, we read that due to Israel's agreement to the terms of the covenant we read last week, that God promises to take up personal resonance among his people in a tabernacle. It is God's plan and purpose to make right what went wrong in the garden, to reestablish his special relationship with his children and to meet up with them or to meet with them. Up to this point, God shares that God, or Scripture shares that God spoke with men at special times and in special ways. But now Yahweh moves to create a special place where his children can come and worship and communicate with him. Theologian Dan Ortland notes that God has been rescuing his people in the first 18 chapters of Exodus. He's been communicating his covenant law in the passage we saw last week. And now in today's passage, God instructs Israel how to receive his holy presence in their midst. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 25 as we continue to read together. This will not be on the monitor. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. And we'd love to give one into your hands if you need it. Exodus chapter 25, let's read verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, otic stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furnitures, you shall make it. Father, open up our minds and hearts to receive your word with gladness. Father, open up our minds and hearts to understand your word. Give us the, the difference to know my mere opinion between your truth. And Lord, as we look at this biblical story and the story of redemption, help us to put together the puzzle pieces as you progressively reveal your plans for us. We praise in the name of Christ. Amen. In these nine verses, we read that God has a plan to make a sanctuary, that he may dwell in their midst. He is now coming back and reinstituting what was once in the garden. Again, he has been meeting individually, so to speak, with, within, or been meeting with individuals from time to time, but now he's going to dwell among his people. And just like the giving of the covenant was a jump in the redemption story, so is this plan of Yahweh to dwell among his children. Since the Garden of Eden, centuries before, there has been no special dwelling place where God met with man. 
as I mentioned before, Yahweh had met with a few special men. We read of God meeting and speaking with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses through angels, dreams, and visions, and even audibly through burning bushes. But never has Yahweh dwelt among them as he did in the garden. The closest we get to this is when you read of Enoch, of whom Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 5, 24, that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Something special is happening. Now, I know as if you read this passage with me, your eyes probably started to glaze over as you read of all the instructions and all how to make all these different types of things. It can be difficult to understand what is happening here. The big picture we see is that God is dwelling or building an earthly place for him to come and dwell in the midst of his people. Emmanuel, so to speak, God with us. The tabernacle will be where the, be the place where Yahweh will meet with his children. As we continue to read in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 25, God tells Moses that there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you or speak with you about all that I will give in you, the commandments for the people of Israel. To accomplish this plan, God gives the children of Israel command to take for me a contribution. It is God's plan for man to participate in the giving and the building of this dwelling place. Now, God created the garden, but this dwelling place will have the handiwork and sacrifice of his children involved. God instructs them to give as every man whose heart moves in this. This is echoing the words of God to you and I today that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul writes, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And if I could, if I can just take an editorial moment, let's take some parentheses. And I would encourage you, I don't speak much about giving here, but I need to encourage you that God still calls us to give as he moves in our hearts. And I want to apologize to you if you've ever been in any type of teaching that has, that has uh, produced some type of legalistic thought of tithing and giving at such a certain percentage and so on and so forth. Uh, it saddened my heart that I heard not too long ago that there is a, I don't know if it's true or not, but they, they have been taught that they are to give 10% of even gift cards that they receive or any type of goods that they have is to take the value and then give back to the church 10% of that. And let me tell you, that's not God's word. For we are not under the law any longer when it comes to tithing. You will not hear me teach about tithing, but you will hear me say what the Bible says here. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As he says here, take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. So I pray that God's heart will move you, for you may see that the advancement of God's kingdom is paramount in the Great Commission. And so let me say editorial, if you please, give me permission to do so. As I know, we're in a church that has a, a, a healthy investment due to some sales of property. And with that, we have taken a five-year journey to, to use that to advance God's kingdom. However, that will not last forever. 
I want to challenge you. If any of you have set back on your giving because of that, I would challenge you to search your heart. We should give as God moves. Not as your pastor tells you to give. Not as someone uh, browbeats you to give, but as God moves in his heart. So I pray that God would just move in your heart to see that God's kingdom should be our number one budget item. I would challenge you to continue to pray, God, what would you have me to do? How would you have us to use that money? Stop. Move on. But God says, take from me a contribution. He is allowing man now to take part in this dwelling place, to have a, a, a skin in the game, so to speak. As we continue in chapter 25 and verse 9, we read that God instructs Moses, though, to do exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. He says, so you shall make it after my pattern. They were to provide the materials and the people to construct the dwelling place, but God provided the pattern. We see that so many times as he goes on in verse 40 of that chapter. He says, so see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is shown upon you on the mountain. In 26 verse 30, he says, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5, we wonder, why is the pattern so important? What does it matter if they're a cubit off here, a cubit off there? What difference does it make if they, if they do something a different color or they stitch it a little bit different or put a different type of design on it? When Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the writer tells us that's because the tabernacle and all of its furnishings serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. You see, there's a master blueprint that God is working off. This is important to them for he goes on to say, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on you in the mountains. You see, God gets to dictate the pattern, the way that you and I are to meet with him, the way that we're to worship, the way that we are to give, the way that we are to serve. The tabernacle would be a portable dwelling place where God would meet with his children, accept their sacrifice, and then present their worship and be forgiven of their sins. This tabernacle itself, this pattern, as scripture tells us, is based on heaven itself. It is an earthly copy of the heavenly throne room of God. We see this in number seven where it's recorded that when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice, uh, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony that we'll talk about in a moment from between the two cherubims and it spoke to him. Imagine if you would, from many of the movies you've seen, the books you have read, the TV shows that you have watched, is that a quarter or an ambassador or someone would go into the throne room to see the king and you could imagine the spectacle, the people there, the tapestry, the beautiful, uh, all the adornments and the throne that's lifted up and you would come and you would kneel and the king would talk to you from his throne room and it would have authority. That's what we're seeing as this tabernacle. That's a pattern. It's putting God above the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat where he's going to speak 
to Moses. Now, I want to give you some observations about the tabernacle. Some things just to kind of take you through whether or not you were able to read them or whether you glazed through it, whether you slept through it or whether you haven't read it all. I want to share with you because this pattern, the furnishings are important. So I want to give you some items of the tabernacle. Look at verse 9. Again, exactly I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its its furniture. So as you look at the screen here, we're just going to kind of go through them very quickly. You'll see the Ark of the Covenant. This is the mercy seat where God is going to speak above. This is where the tablets would go. And as you'll see, they, they built it so that it was portable, that they could not touch it. They could only carry it by those poles that were there. So there's the Ark of the Covenant. This was a special place where God would meet with Moses. This was like the throne room of God. The next, you'll see the table for the bread. This is the place where the, the food was there presented before, before God. And it would have different plates and bowls and cups. Again, you'll see that it was portable with little, uh, with little places to stick poles in and could be picked up and carried. You'll see the golden lampstand. That was for lighting, for, for lamp, for light. You'll see the bronze altar is the next. That's where they would put the sacrifice. It was made so the ashes could go down and the blood could be drained. The altar of incense is where they would, would uh, put up the different types of smells and things of that used in worship. You'll see the bronze basin, the ceremonial washing place for the priests. Then you'll see the veil, and this one's a little bit more difficult, as you'll see that this is the whole uh, tabernacle inside, the holy place of the most holy. I'm going to walk over here just for a second. You'll see that the priest would come in there and do some things, and then only the high priest could go into the most holy of holies, and that is where the Ark of the Covenant would, that would be the place that God would dwell and speak to Moses There was a veil there. You'll see that between those two rooms. It's kind of opened a little bit, but that's the veil that was torn in Matthew after Jesus rose from the dead. And then you'll see the most holy place. Now the tabernacle and the furnishings provided the space that represented the throne room of God. Any common Israelite could enter the courts. And you'll see there, there's the big court. So they could enter, any common Israelite could enter that common court. But only the priestly tribe could go beyond and into the tabernacle itself, which was the picture before. But only the high priest could go beyond still into the Holy of Holies. And only then, only once per year, the Day of Atonement. In Exodus chapter 26, as you continue to read with me, in Exodus chapter 26, look at verse 33. For God commanded Moses shall you, the Moses to hang the veil from the class, speaking of the veil in the most holy, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy of places. So those are some of the items. Now, we could spend a month of Sundays on each and every one of these items. Again, they were a pattern and there's symbolism there that marks with the temple and with other things in Scripture. But for time's sake, we're not going to go through all that. If you'd like to do that study, I'd encourage you to do so on your own. But it's enough for you to share that there were items, furnishings in the tabernacle that were to be made to a specific pattern and had specific purposes in their worship. Now we go on to the people of the tabernacle. This is found in Exodus chapter 28. In verse 1 of chapter 28, God commands Moses, Bring near to you Aaron your brother 
and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest Aaron and his sons, Nadib and Abu and Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make Harley, a uh, Harley, Harley, uh, they can wear Harley clothes, I suppose, holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And then on the monitor, you can see very quickly, we won't go through all the details there, but you can see that there was a very elaborate system that they wear from the top of their heads all the way down along with the stones that we see that were on the breastplate and all sorts of things. Aaron and his sons would serve as the priests and the mediators and the interceders for God and his children. They would be the go-betweens by performing the sacrifice for the sins of the people and praying for God's forgiveness and acceptance. If we were to continue in that chapter and look in verse 29 of that chapter 28, God tells Moses, So Aaron shall bear the, the name the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So they were mediators. They would go in and bring into remembrance for the Lord the children of Israel. The second group, we can go from there, the second group of people that had responsibility for the tabernacle were those who were of age to support the priest in their work. Look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. Moses, good Lord, tells Moses, in verse 12, take a census of the people of Israel. Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, so that there be no plague among them when you number them. Verse 13, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. They shall give a half, she a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Everyone, in verse 14, who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give to the Lord's offering. Verse 15, the rich shall give no more and the poor shall not give less. You shall, verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of the meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance for the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Similarly today, God tells us to give. One of the reasons we give is to provide for those that still give service to the structures and the service and the workings of the church. The third group that we're going to see here that's involved is that of the craftsmen, the carpenters, the artisans, the jewelers, and so on, to make all the necessary furnishing structures and curtains. Look at the Exodus chapter 31. In verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, in verse 2, See, I have called by name Bezal, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge in all craftsmen, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for settings and in carving wood to work in every craft. This was a man, I mean, he was, I mean, he was that guy that you'd see in the craft booth. He could do it all. In verse 6, I behold, I have appointed with him uh, Oholiab, the son of Ashamak of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I've commanded you. So God provides what he's required here to make of the pattern. He says, according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. Now as we look, we see that there are many things that God has called us to do as we dwell among his presence. But we see that God provides the pattern of worship. God provides the people to do that and the items, the things that are necessary. 
Now, God finishes by reminding them three times to remember the Sabbath. In Exodus 31, we learn that this command was very important to God. Look at verse 13 of chapter 31. God tells Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be what? Put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Moses records in Exodus 31.18 that Yahweh gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai. The two tablets of the testimony, the tables of stone, written with the finger of God, what you and I know as the Ten Commandments. God has a pattern for worship. And when you talk about the furnishings, what they're doing is all the things necessary in those items. We're thinking of just items, you know, furniture, basins, all these types of things. But all of those took a part in making atonement for sin. So God decided how it would look. He would decide how atonement would make. He decided who would make the atonement, who would be the mediators, who would be the interceders. He would also then decide who would have the ability to make all those things. Yet he incorporates man in doing that. From our study in scripture, we've come to understand that ever since the fall of humanity, that God has wanted a relationship with his children. And he has wanted a meeting place with his children where he could dwell among them and they could be his people. They could worship him and receive forgiveness of sin and be taught his word. And he wanted to make a way of reconciliation. One theologian notes that in this passage that God instructs Israel how to build the tabernacle and consecrate the priest, providing the structures and the servants needed for him to dwell with his people. God desires to dwell among his people. And here we see God making that possible. In addition, this dwelling place was where they would be taught the law and find atonement for their sin. Yet, you and I understand from reading the scripture that this tabernacle was temporary. It would eventually be replaced by the temple built by King Solomon in Jerusalem, which itself was destroyed by the Babylonians. A second temple would be rebuilt years later, still being built until the time of Christ, only to be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But not only was this tabernacle temporary, but so was the atonement that was offered by Aaron and the priest. Yahweh commands Moses in Exodus 30 verse 10, that Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year, speaking of the, 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 the bronze uh, altar. And with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So this first pattern was, it was not finale, final. They had to make atonement twice a day for the sins of the people. And then they would have to make atonement once a year 
for the people. But not only that, the priests themselves would first have to consecrate themselves and make their own sacrifices before they could intercede for the people. As beautiful as this tabernacle was, as efficient as it was, as important it was in the, in the story of redemption for Israel, it was only temporary. It could not do what God truly required it to do. See, this tabernacle on the sacrificial system was only the next step in the redemption story. So as you and I read these scriptures and we look at this tabernacle and we look at all the things we think, boy, I wish we had such trappings today. You can go to great cathedrals that try to mimic the tabernacle and the temple. Why don't we dress in that same type of way? Simply because that's not the pattern. Though it was of God, it was only temporary. It was only the next step in the redemption story. It was not the final chapter. As you and I read earlier, all of this was just copies and shadows of a greater reality that's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. These were copies and shadows that truly pointed to one who would make and write the final chapter. So with that, I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. For here the writer shares a wonderful truth that leads to life eternal for all those that trust in the works of Christ. So one may say, well, why is it so important then to understand here God's work and redemption as progressively works? And I believe as we look at this that you and I can actually rejoice and give God more glory for the final work that he's done rather than just the temporary work that was done in those days. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. The writer of Hebrew writes, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and, uh, and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. So if you were to walk in that, you would see there, and then he says it is called the most holy place. Behold, the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now, or of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made. So they followed through, they made this, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and now without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The, the, the atonement for two days was for the intentional. This was for the unintentional. And I lost my place. Verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, look at this, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He knows that he's still in sin. 
He has to do it again the next day. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the reformation. Now, this is when someone's speaking of the tabernacle, which would have been holy to the Jews, as well as the temple that came after it. But he's saying these are just copies and shadows. It could not do what needed to be done. For look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. Final. For it is the blood, for if by the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Look at verse 15, we'll end there. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What do we see here? It's beautiful and wonderful. As important this tabernacle was, the writer of Hebrews informs us that Jesus it's the greater tabernacle. Just as Jesus said that he's the greater temple. Jesus is the greater priest. And he's the greater sacrifice. Look on the monitor if you would. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transfer, uh, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Aaron and his sons could not do this. For they were sinful themselves. Look at Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed is interceding for us. He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greater priest. He is the greater tabernacle. See, Jesus accomplishes what God has been setting to do from since the garden. That mercy seat is now Christ as he pours his blood at the throne room of God and God accepts it. You and I must understand this. For now you and I could have the freedom from our sin, from the power of a sin. You and I can now have a freedom of conscience that's clear because the penalty of sin has been broken. I don't know about you, but there are many consciences that are seared today who no longer consider the things of God. They ignore the pattern of God. Yet there are many Christians even today whose heart and conscience sometimes is filled with guilt and shame. But let me tell you that if you stand under the blood of Christ, 
There's no need to do so. Yes, Satan stands before God in the throne room of heaven, accusing the saints day and night, but yet they fall on deaf ears. For Jesus, our great advocate, stands beside him and says it's been bought, it's been paid for. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. Would you consider that this morning? The child of Israel, as he would enter into the tent and he would come to the meeting place of God, was still prevented from going fully to the throne room of God. He still had to hear through the priest and through Moses. But with the tearing down of the veil after Christ's resurrection, Scripture tells us that you and I can boldly go into the throne room of God. That Jesus is ever praying for us. So you could walk in that tabernacle and you may feel good for a while, but recognize as your head hits your pillow, if they had pillows in those days, is that the atonement, the forgiveness was only temporary. You and I can rejoice in that the story of redemption is almost final. Our salvation has been accomplished. We have something even greater to look forward to. That ought to encourage us and challenge us and lead us to a greater area of worship. God dwelt and spoke to Adam and Eve personally in the garden. What a wonderful time. I believe it was very short, personally. This is my opinion. I believe the from the giving of Adam and Eve or giving of Eve to Adam and the instruction to work and keep the land and the instruction and command not to eat the tree, that there probably wasn't much time between there. My own personal opinion. Yet God walked with them personally and spoke to them in the cool of Moses and the priests. God dwelt in the temple speaking to his children through the law, the priests, and the prophets. Today God dwells and speaks to his children through the scripture by elders and teachers in the church today via the Holy Spirit. But the word of encouragement that I want to give to you is that still the story is not done. For one day you and I will dwell with God in the new heaven and the new earth. The Apostle John writes from our scripture reading from earlier, Landon was reading about the new heaven and new earth and God is with us, right? And we shall be his people No, we shall be his children. We shall be his sons and daughters to him. John says, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because it is no longer needed. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp, and its lamp is the Lamb. He says, by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will never enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May you and I be encouraged. That as God has made a way possible for us or maybe made sure our salvation, our salvation will find its final fulfillment as we come into new heavens and the new earth.
And once again, as in the Garden of Eden, God will dwell among us in a way that is so much more than what we have today. May that strengthen and encourage you. Let me conclude by this. I believe God wants you to understand that his story of redemption has progressively been revealed through the history of time. It is his desire to reconcile us to himself by forgiving our sins and bringing us back into fellowship. And as we read the story of ancient uh, ancient Israel, no longer do we need a tabernacle, but as we look at it, we see God is moving through history, even so today. God wants you to believe that your redemption has been secured through the work of Christ, as he was offered as the final sacrifice, and he earned our righteousness through the obedience to the Father. I believe God wants you to desire this morning his presence more than anything else in the world. And I would encourage you, do not desire a tabernacle. Do not desire a temple. Do not just desire a church, but desire the very presence of God. You and I make a mistake when we present salvation as your wonderful life forever. Heaven is a beautiful place. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? But I will tell you, the world does not want to go to heaven if Jesus is there. For we have spent history denying the very God, the creator and sustainer of our life. So I would ask you, do you desire God more than silver and gold today? Do you eagerly wait for Christ's return and for that salvation, the presence of sin to be eradicated? Or do you desire the gifts of God more than God himself? I believe God wants you to follow his pattern of worship, not substituting his laws and commands with your own passions and desires. He wants you to give generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully to his work, providing the structure and the labor and the service that you and I are needed to fulfill the Great Commission. He wants you not to forsake the assembling of yourselves, but he wants you to assemble with his children and to know that he is God. Would you do so this morning? For God's presence dwells with us in a greater way than he did before. But we're looking forward to the greater time when we will dwell with him personally. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I ask you to just take a moment to pause, to consider and pray and respond to the Holy Spirit. Do you understand his story of redemption? Do you believe that your redemption has been bought? Or are you struggling today? Have you called on him for salvation? What is it that you desire above all things? Is it the things of God? Is it God himself or just the gifts, the good things in life? And are you ready to follow him to the ends of the earth? Though my foes slay me, I will still follow God. Would you make that commitment this morning? Would you follow the pattern of worship that he's called us to, knowing that Jesus has accomplished what God has required? Father, we come before you and we ask for your strength, for your wisdom, discernment, to understand your word. These stories that are found that deal with buildings and, and artistry and Making things can many times be confusing and just something that we bypass. 
but help us to see that even in the details, we see your glory and we see your work, your ministry of reconciliation. We thank you, Father, that we live in a day in which that reconciliation has found truth and is final. But we look forward to that day when it's completed. Help us to be overcomers. Help us to be those who look forward to that hope. And may we share that hope with others. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.